Well, hello, it's Zane Horowitz and the crew at the Oregon Poison Center for the first of our academic uh, season in 2023, Journal Club, it's September 7th, and we are talking about lab errors that made the diagnosis, or in some cases made the misdiagnosis, or they had to be pulled back from uh, invasive procedures and worse, uh, because some kind of a lab false positive created it. We'll talk a lot about anion gap, but a couple of other cases as well. I'm going to start off, and these are all relatively short articles, I'm going to start off with an article entitled False Positive Acetaminophen Concentrations in Icteric Serum. So the answer is right there in the title, but just as some background, um, we can get acetaminophen concentrations um, by a couple of different methods. There's chromatographic techniques, and there's immunoassays, and there's spectrophotometric <coughs> techniques. The sort of gold standard, which we don't use in most labs because it takes a lot of time, is high-performance liquid chromatography, or HPLC. Um, what we usually use is some sort of automated immunoassay uh, or enzyme-linked colorimetric method. I'll, I'm going to name the names of the machines because not only do they show up in this paper, but they show up in some of the other papers we're going to talk about as being a problem. So the two machines that they had problems with, with this case report I'll tell you about, is the Cobas and the Artect machine. So let's get into the case. It's a 49-year-old woman who presented in a coma to an emergency department. Uh, her friends and family ignored her comatose state for four days, and they assumed that perhaps she had been drinking because she had a known history of alcohol uh, misuse. And by the time they brought her to the hospital, she had a Glasgow coma score of three, a blood pressure of 75 over 55, um, heart rate of 92, and she was slightly hypothermic at 35. And she was jaundiced, clearly jaundiced. Her labs showed a bilirubin, and this is in micromoles, 442 micromoles per liter. Reference is usually less than 17. An ALKFOS of 456, a GGT of 1,182, an AST of 129, an ALT, which was normal at 43, so just the AST and GTT were elevated, and, um, and a cinnamon concentration was 81 micromoles per liter. Again, that's how we usually do it, the normal being up therapeutic up to 45 micromoles. So figure that's about twice what we would consider up a normal using micrograms. Um, of course, what are you going to do with elevated liver enzymes, transaminases? Uh, you got to treat them with NAC, and she got treated with NAC. And again, the acetaminophen concentration was measured on that Cobos 6000 machine. Um, and after treatment with NAC, it was down to 11. And this was now back in the range we think of in micrograms per liter. Um, and then four days of daily levels, her levels were 11, 12, 11, 12, 11, 12 and uh, they were wondering what was going on. So they ran the acetaminophen concentration through the Architect C8000 machine, and it too gave an elevated acetaminophen concentration. So they finally went to the, the gold standard, the HPLC, and sure enough, there was no acetaminophen whatsoever in her bloodstream. So what was the problem? Uh, problem was she was liver failure, and she was icteric, and she had hyperbilirubinemia, and bilirubin, is a considerable potential for interference with all the spectrophotomeric uh, measurements. 
I'll go through one that basically it's an enzyme-linked colorimetric method and it relies on the hydrolysis of acetaminophen to yield P-aminophenol. This is what the cobalt machine uses. Um, and then that reacts with another dye to be blue-colored and it's linear. And in the presence of ocreosol as a pyridate catalyst, it somehow gives you a numerical number. Now, all that detail is not terribly important. I think what's important is that bilirubin in two of those three machines causes an interference. And in fact, there was no acetaminophen probably whatsoever in her system. So sort of the punchline and the warning of this article is that if you think that your uh, acetaminophen concentration is not changing, especially in the presence of any sort of elevated bilirubin, you need to use an HPLC method to prove or, or disprove, in this case, uh, again, a false positive lab error, and she was treated for probably a few extra days or that she didn't need to be treated with. So that's one acetaminophen story, and we, we don't have any others here today, but uh, we're going to jump around a little bit. We're going to talk a lot about things in basic chemistry. So everybody comes in and gets a chem panel, and one of the things that often gets everyone's attention is when the creatinine is really elevated. So to tell us about a few problems with creatinine uh, is our fellow Colleen. Hey, so I will first be presenting a little article that is intoxication with nitromethane containing fuels. Don't be fueled by creatinine. Very punny. Uh, so the uh, abstract is case series two patients. One had ingested nitromethane intentionally and the other was a drag racer that had become soaked in the fuel after a crash in which he was a polytrauma patient. So uh, both patients were in their you know, early 20s. Um, the first lady, 23-year-old, uh, had more or less unremarkable labs with the exception of a creatinine of 17.9. Uh, she had some send-out labs that hadn't resolved, but with her creatinine of 17.9, she was medically cleared to be changed over to a psych unit which I thought was interesting. Uh, and then several hours later, uh, her methanol level came back uh, elevated at 89, so they removed her back to the emergency department. Uh, and she developed blurry vision and was uh, given hemodialysis, uh, after which both the, the methanol and the creatinine levels went back down. Uh, and the second case was the 25-year-old male crashed his uh, his vehicle going almost 300 miles an hour, uh, broke a lot of things in his body, um, but his labs were uh, remarkable for a creatinine of 8.6, which over a couple hours went up to 17.5. Um, in both of those cases, patients had normal BUNs, normal electrolytes, just the creatinine. So what both of them had in common is their creatinine was tested by I I'm not sure about the pronunciation. I believe it's the Jaffe mm -hmm. uh, reaction, which is uh, a colorimetric test. There is an enzymatic assay, but it's not nearly as used because it costs a lot more. <coughs> and uh, so money money wins out. Uh, It'll be a recurring theme a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the Jaffe reaction is extremely old. It was uh, invented in like the late 1800s, and essentially you're combining your creatinine with a pick rate and then 
seeing what color, uh, I believe it's like around red, 500 to 530. And if it makes this particular color, then the machine reads it as uh, creatinine. Unfortunately, there's a lot of different things that will react with the picrate and cause that same reaction. And one of those things is the nitromethane. So the, um, the folks in this study did some, some nice experimentation looking at uh, the false reading of creatinine in combining nitromethane with the picrate and uh, found that the very nice elevated uh, levels that were drawn over time on both of these patients, um, there's almost like a one-to-one a, a -one reaction of the, uh, the nitromethane. So those levels of 17 point something, it's, it's likely that their creatinine was completely normal and that pretty much entirely what was being read as creatinine was in fact the nitromethane. Uh, I don't think in either case patients got you know, treatments they didn't need because uh, you need, <laughs> you do need hemodialysis for nitromethane when it starts, you know, becoming methanol and giving you methanol <coughs> toxicity. But um, it's, you don't want to end up going down the rabbit hole of looking for kidney failure when you should be looking for toxic alcohols. Um, and I think the, the uh, you want to go on to the, the other paper that yeah. kind of dovetails well, into this? Right. I'll just uh, you know, briefly mention that, yeah, that some of the different fuels for model airplanes mm -hmm. and model racing cars and actually big track cars actually do have some methanol in it. So if there's an intentional ingestion, you know, you'd mm -hmm. have to check like they didn't look too carefully or, or, or wait for the lab to come back in the first case for the methanol concentration <clears> that was about 40% methanol in that case and about 35% nitromethane. Mm -hmm. So it's just a marker for the other. But if you're sure that there's no methanol, uh, don't panic with the creatinine mm -hmm. in the teens or everything else looks good. Yeah, interesting that they medically cleared her with a creatinine mm -hmm. of 17. Mm -hmm. But <clears throat> personally enjoyed the understatement of the year. Mm -hmm. This dragster underwent structural disintegration upon reaching approximately yeah. 290 yeah. miles an hour. Yeah, that's that's some nice language. Way to put it. <laughs> I did have one case of this that was a very small child who got into the model car mm -hmm. fuel, mm -hmm. and he really, it was one of those where, like, did the kid really get anything? Probably not. And his creatinine was, like, 3.5. And so I had read these cases where, the, well, the creatinine is supposed to be 20 or whatever, but it was like he really probably just got a tiny little bit, and then so his creatinine was a tiny little bit elevated, yeah, and then it cleared in two hours. Or but there's no reason, other reason for him to have a creatinine of three. Yeah, so. exactly. Yeah. So whenever we get those labs and they panic call, that's one yep. of the questions we ask. But there are other things that cause a false estimate of creatinine you'll tell yeah. us about. There's, there is a number of them. So as with most colorimetric testing, Anything that causes the machine to read the right wavelength uh, of light is going to be read as whatever the machine is programmed to read, which in this case, if it's reading 500 to 530, is going to be creatinine. Unfortunately, there's a lot of different things that can either cause that reading to go up or go down, um, if you're specifically talking about that colorimetric Jaffe reaction, which is the most common. Um, I, I was surprised by the number of things on this list, um, looking at the, uh, the paper Positive and Negative False Estimates of Serum Creatinine, <coughs> published in Interventional Cardiology. 
Um, a lot of the cephalosporins uh, can cause increased uh, like positive interference where your creatinine might get bumped a little bit. Uh, and there's a lot of medications that, you know, the, the creatinine isn't falsely elevated. The creatinine, there is an increase in the creatinine, but it's because the uh, tubular secretion of the creatinine has gone down, so you're keeping more of it, but the GFR has not actually changed at all. So usually we're using creatinine as a rough measurement of GFR, but just because your creatinine is up doesn't mean it's because your GFR isn't, you know, functioning correctly. Um, whether that's because you've eaten a bunch of beef and now your body is just full of exogenous creatinine, well, your kidneys are doing their job just fine. You just have given a little extra load to your body. Uh, yeah, they, they, they went over a bunch of different mechanisms, like the eating, eating meat, adding exogenous, um, decreasing your secretion while leaving your GFR unchanged, uh, and then some things that are truly you know, colorimetric <coughs> interference, such as the nitromethane. Um, I'm not sure how much specificity you want me to go into through this list of many, many substances. No, a couple of ones that we certainly care about in talks, such as aspirin mm -hmm. and yeah. um both can interfere with the Jaffe reaction. Mm -hmm. um, conversely, what we just talked about, bilirubin actually causes negative interference, so you're yeah. actually, your creatinine will be falsely suppressed mm -hmm. um, in enteric serum, so it won't reflect true mm -hmm. level of renal function. So these are things sometimes that give us a clue to what's going on. I guess we didn't really talk about the enzymatic reaction because that is mm -hmm. a lot less frequently used mm -hmm. um, because of cost and the amount of time that it takes your laboratory workers to, to go through the process uh, where you're actually using, I believe, one of the uh, creatinine-ace enzymes to turn your creatinine into creatine and then do some more chemistry with it. So it's got, in general, a lot fewer, you know, false interactions because of the specificity of the enzymes. But there were still medications here, such as lidocaine and flucytosine, that can cause positive interference with your enzymatic assay. So. Yeah. And often the physician and the nurses and everybody else doesn't know which one's being used by the lab, because we just don't. It's oh, no. just true, that's what it is. So when you have these things, you probably have to talk to the lab technician directly and ask them which method they're using in order to help figure out if you're dealing with a true positive or a true negative or some kind of interfering substances. So don't be fueled by the creatinine. As I, one of the, I usually don't like punny uh, ones, but that one helps you remember what the agent involved is. All right, moving along, and uh, some of my favorite uh, topics in uh, the anion gap is pseudo-hypochloridemia. Emma is going to tell us about a few different cases of that. Okay. Um, I'm going to start with a case report from the legend B. Zane Horowitz. <clears throat> um, this is a classic one uh, that we talk about a lot here at the Organ Poison Center. Um, which is bromism from excessive cola consumption. Um, a really interesting case, and I love how 
the case really goes through how this guy came to the hospital over and over and over again and his chloride levels that are just absolutely sky high were completely overlooked. Um, so this is a case of a 40-year-old male who was otherwise healthy. Um, and I'll just start at his first presentation, which was 30 days before the eventual um, admission that got him diagnosed with bromism. So 30 days previously, he came into the ED with a headache. Uh, he got a CT scan, and it was uh, equivocal, I guess, for a subarachnoid hemorrhage. So he came in, and he got CSF, which didn't have any blood or xanthochromia, and he got an MRI and an angiogram and all this, and they discharged him um, 12 days later. At this uh, point, it, the admission serum chloride was 152, and when he was discharged 12 days later, his discharge uh, labs had a chloride of 115. Um, so two weeks after that, he comes in also with a headache uh, and some lethargy. Again, he gets repeat lumbar puncture. Um, he gets another workup. It's negative. He goes home. At that time, his chloride was 132. He goes home on pain medicine for his headache. So the third presentation, he said, I, the headache had now resolved, and now he can't walk. So I always say that an adult... For an adult, if they really want to stay in the hospital, all they have to say is, I can't walk. If you could walk yesterday and you can't walk today, then you get to stay, right? So he couldn't walk and he comes in. The family says he's losing his memory, he can't concentrate, he was having trouble with coordination. Um, they, on further history, they find out that he had had about a diverticulitis, which required a colostomy, a divertic colostomy, and he had since then had chronic diarrhea and a large weight loss. What was interesting is that over this time, he stated that he consumed two to four liters of this discount store cola brand over these last six months. Um, and so he wouldn't drink the cola while he was in the hospital, but he, as soon as he got home, he went back to his cola habit. Um, so on his exam, um, vitals were normal. He could not stand unsupported. He had ptosis of the right eyelid, and he was kind of diffusely weak, poor coordination with no focal motor deficit other than this right-sided ptosis. On this final um, arrival to the, to the hospital, his chloride was 130, um, and his anion gap at that time was negative 16. His osms were normal. Um, eventually, somebody called the poison center, and they recommended that they get a serum bromide concentration due to the negative anion gap. Uh, and the bromide concentration was 3,180 milligrams per liter, which is quite elevated. <laughs> um, 
So he was treated with fluids. Uh, they, but he didn't really improve. His um, serum chloride, interestingly, was fluctuated and actually went up um, a few days after fluid, um, a few days into just fluid resuscitation. And his chloride went up, but his serum bromide at that time actually had started to go down. It was 2,800. So the half-life of the bromide at this point was 11.6 days, um, if you calculated it out. So basically, they decided to do hemodialysis. Um, and right after four hours of hemodialysis, the chloride read 116, but the bromide level came down to 377. Um, so the hemodialysis, uh, the half-life of the bromide during hemodialysis was 1.38 hours, very much quicker than just with fluids. Um, and the best part of the case is that after hemodialysis, the patient dramatically improved with complete resolution of his ptosis, his lethargy, and his ataxia. Um, he had a little more dialysis. Uh, while he was admitted, and then he went home normal. Um, so I really like this part. They found an empty discount cola bottle, and listed in the ingredients was brominated vegetable oil. Um, they asked the store about it, but the store pulled all the cola from its shelves and refused to allow <laughs> testing. <laughs> so... I guess we'll never get to test the brominated vegetable oil cola. Um, so the discussion talks about different kind of places you can find bromide. Um, more or less, these were in medications uh, a long time ago as sort of sedative hypnotic um, drugs, and people would get bromazin just from over long-term overuse. Um, so the half-life of, of Bromide is just very long, so if you're using these drugs too much, it's, it easily kind of adds up. Um, there's also some bromide in dextromethorphan and a couple of other drugs, um, which maybe, maybe if you had, if you took a lot of dextromethorphan over a long time, you could get some bromism from that. Um, and so basically what tipped off the providers in this case was this negative anion gap um, and this massive hyperchloremia that just kind of doesn't make sense, right? Why would someone have a chloride of 150? Um, so the reason that this happens is the bromide interferes with most commonly used assays for fluoride. So it produces this factitiously elevated level. Um, hyperchloremia uh, alone is a very rare laboratory abnormality, which could happen in, you know, a normal metabolic acidosis, but mm, probably not up to 150. Um, so in every, in almost every case report in the literature, um, including this one, the diagnosis of the bromism was very delayed, despite oftentimes this very sort of obvious hyperchloremia that doesn't make sense. Um, and so sort of treatment for bromism is you try fluids, uh, if fluids doesn't work, um, there's some reports of mannitol or loop diuretics, uh, and then eventually hemodialysis. Um, there's no specific recommendations for hemodialysis 
based on the bromide levels or symptoms or chloride levels or anything like that. So it's, it seems like it's clinical judgment. Um, but this guy was clearly very toxic and improved very dramatically. So that's sort of a baseline. Um, and then I've got a couple, another interesting case, um, which was an ethylene glycol poisoning with a normal anion gap due to an occult bromide intoxication. And so this patient, similarly, the bromide was sort of, the, the brominism was uh, being hidden um, by this ethylene glycol poisoning. So 39-year-old woman um, found unresponsive. Um, she, had, she was extremely acidotic, which came in. Her, she's basically GCS3, tachycardic, um, Kussmaul breathing, and her ABG had a pH of 6.85, um, PCO2 of 11, um, and she, on her BMP, she had a chloride level of 122. This was measured colorimetrically. And she had an anion gap of 8.9, so a completely normal anion gap. They were very suspicious of ethylene glycol, but they weren't able to get an ethylene glycol level. So they tested her urinary oxalate excretion, um, which was elevated, which uh, fascinated me that they could not get an ethylene glycol level, but they could somehow measure the oxalate <laughs> excretion. In her urine, okay, that's fine. Um, so yes, they're super suspicious for this ethylene glycol, but but they couldn't prove it, and they had a normal anion gap. So I, the the way they make it sound is it made them sort of second guess themselves. Like, it's, could this possibly be an ethylene glycol ingestion that comes in with this normal anion gap, despite the fact that she had a massive metabolic acidosis based on her labs or her ABG. Um, so they treated her with bicarb. Her pH, they couldn't really get her pH up. Um, they repeated all her labs and her chloride is now 127. Um, and finally her anion gap did rise uh, to 26. And they got an osmolar gap of 20. So they decided that um, they should just go ahead and do some hemodialysis. Um, it, she improved, and then she said, yeah, I, t I drank a bunch of antifreeze. Um, at the time of her arrival, though, because of this unexplained uh, hyperchloremia, they decided to send a bromide level, um, and the bromide level eventually came back at 175 milligrams per deciliter. Now, if we compare this to Zane's case, Zane's case had... Uh, 3,000 milligrams per liter. This lady had 175 milligrams per deciliter, so that would be 1,750 milligrams per liter. So similarly, quite elevated, um, definitely above toxic level. Um, and so the bromism that she was suffering also kind of cleared when they did hemodialysis for the presumed ethylene glycol. They never got an ethylene glycol level. <laughs> um, but maybe she didn't even drink that much. Uh, so 
more or less, they got this patient, they were so suspicious of ethylene glycol, but they had this normal anion gap and they had this elevated, you know, unexplained hyperchloremia, which is kind of what tipped them off. So they just make the point that, um, you know, the neurologic signs of bromism, uh, agitation or psychosis or tremors or ataxia wouldn't be apparent in a patient with, um, you know, who's altered from a polyingestion. Um, and so this inappropriately normal anion gap, which is sort of the equivalent of a negative anion gap uh, in another patient, um, in addition to this unexplained hyperchloremia, sort of tipped them off to think, oh, hey, maybe there was some brominism at play. Um, so that's our second bromine. The key is in both of those cases and multiple other ones that are in the literature, like chlorides, which we, if you ask a bunch of people what the normal chloride is, they probably wouldn't be able to tell you what the upper limit of chloride is if you just ask that. But it's only about 105, um, sometimes even lower in some labs. So when you see 122, it doesn't register in a lot of times, but 122 and 150 are outrageously elevated chloride levels, and it will pick up chloride, fluoride, bromide, iodide. I've had a patient that had a, a chlorine measured in the 120s that um, had a bunch of um, dextromethorphan. Yep. There so it is. A lot of bromide and dextromethorphan, bromide, salt. Go figure. Well, there's one other reason for pseudo hypochloridemia, and it's the last case report you have there. Okay, so this was a pseudo hyperchloremia caused by a sodium nitrate ingestion. This is sort of a um, more recent topic. You know, we probably won't see that much brominism because you can't get those sedatives anymore. So it sounds like they worked quite well. Um, but nowadays, many people do try to. Um, injure themselves by consuming sodium nitrite, which is a meat preservative that you can easily buy online. Um, and due to, due to the similarities in nomenclature, uh, patients sometimes mistakenly get sodium nitrate. Um, interestingly, I mean, if you take enough sodium nitrite, you're probably extremely uh, ill and might not uh, make it to the point where someone is um, thinking hard about your lab values over time. So, but if you take sodium nitrate, uh, some portion of that nitrate is converted to nitrite. Um, so you might get sick, but not as sick. Um, and of course that causes methemoglobinemia. So this 29-year-old in this case um, took sodium nitrate in addition to a bunch of their home medications, including cotiapine, escitalopram, zopiclone, lorazepam, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so they came in a little hypoxic, a little tachycardic, and normal blood pressure, some ataxia, hyperreflexia. Um, and they got, uh, they, okay, they initially got labs on something called an ABL 800, uh, blood gas analyzer, which is a radiometer, 
Um, and these, this showed a chloride level of 167 with the remainder of the values fairly, um, slightly abnormal, a little hype. Uh, hypernatremic uh, with sodium 163, hypokalemic with potassium 3.2, the pH was 7.3. Um, the mad hemoglobin was 9.4, so a little bit elevated from the nitrate, but not so much that it required any intervention. Um, but it was interesting that this chloride was 167 uh, with a negative anion gap of negative 35. Um, so the patient remained in the hospital and the neurologic deficits uh, resolved. Um, and so they, looking at this chloride, they suspected that this was artifactual because the patient had a normal pH, it wasn't a, a metabolic acidosis, anything like that. So under this suspicion that this was an artifact, they ordered formal chloride testing um, on an alinity, an Abbott machine, which is a redox uh, reaction. And then they did mass spec as well. And they did, they did serial samples and tracked out what the chloride level was. Um, and so they see on this radiometer, um, which is sort of the point of care uh, machine, the initial chloride was 258, and then it goes down to 200, and then down to 170, and then down to 154. But if you do the if you look at the mass spec numbers, the chloride is normal the entire time. It's like 95, 96, 102, 94. So these levels are all normal on the mass spec and on the redox machine. So their suspicion is that the nitrate present is interfering with this machine, and it interfered proportionally less as they as the patient was clearing the nitrate in their system. Um, the positive inf interference becoming less evident as the nitrate toxicity resolved. Um, so they didn't have patient's plasma nitrate levels. So we, we can't prove a like linear correlation, but it kind of makes sense. So their theory on how it it was causing this is that the redox electrodes on the Abbott machine, it, they generate a, and I kind of was reading on the Abbott website sort of how this works, because this, the Abbott, this is sort of like those iStat machines that we have, is like you put the blood in and it goes in these little slots and then you put that in the machine and the blood never enters the machine. It's that the there's a membrane there's a okay the redox electrode generates a potential when solid state silver reacts with the ionic chloride which precipitates silver chloride so the nitrate won't react with the silver because the nitrate isn't soluble enough to do that. And so it didn't interfere, so it didn't interfere with this Abbott machine. 
But in the radiometer machine, which was this point of care machine that they, this other point of care machine they had, there is a membrane electrode which relies on ion exchange to selectively transport chloride into some electrolyte solution. And this chloride movement produces a voltage that is, you know, proportional to the amount of chloride in the sample. So basically because this voltage is just relying on ions, it can be interfered with by, this, by the nitrate um, the same way that it would be interfered with if it was iodide or bromide or something else. Um, and their theory is that the nitrate is more hydrophobic than the chloride, so it actually causes, it moves into the um, membrane faster or something. So that is their theory, unproven because we didn't have nitrate levels, but they have this very nice chart of the falsely elevated chloride slowly drifting down over time and these mass spec numbers that are staying exactly the same. So I think I'm sold, even though I don't 100% understand how these machines work. <laughs> and, and again, it's, it's up to us or to maybe ask the lab like what machines interfere with chloride. More likely than not, when you have an elevated chloride, it is probably a false positive and not a true hyperchloremic because there are very few honest hypochloremic states that occur disease-wise or otherwise. Right. So. I am a little interested because we don't, it's not that uncommon that we get patients with nitrate toxicity mm -hmm. and methemoglobin levels. Mm -hmm. And so I now want to put this in the back of my head the next time I get a nitrate toxicity to ask for the chloride level because probably when we get a call at the poison center for a nitrate and they've got a methemoglobin level, I might not ever ask for the chloride level, right? Because um, we're a little focused on the methemoglobin. But. Yeah, well, again, hyperchloridemia. One of the things that messes up your anion gap, and certainly if you see a negative anion gap, it almost always is hyperbromism, or in rare cases, hyperiodinism, which is even more obscure. Haven't had one of those yet, but there's time. But in your second <laughs> case, they talked about how they almost missed the diagnosis, but they were thinking about it of toxic alcohol ingestion. So we move on to our next um, group of cases that were published back to back with sort of opposite issues having to do with actually getting that ethylene glycol level in two different children and with two different results. So Kiai tells about those. Yes, I feel like these are the most like crime podcast style uh, cases. <laughs> um, so we'll start with the, the first one, which is uh, mysteriously titled, Misidentification of Propionic Acid as Ethylene Glycol in a Patient with Methylmalonic Acidemia. Um, so this is a three-month-old with one-day history of feeding intolerance, lethargy, and tachypnea, and was actually brought in, uh, kind of obtunded, very ill-appearing, uh, and was initially uh, diagnosed with otitis media. Um, the labs did reveal an elevated anion gap metabolic acidosis with hypoglycemia, so the patient was started on a bicarb infusion uh, and admitted to the PICU where they recovered. And on the second day of hospitalization, they sent the labs out to this independent laboratory who reported back that the serum acetone level was markedly elevated and the ethylene glycol was 180. 
uh, no interference for the year. So obviously this being that elevated automatically kind of set off the alarm bells. The child was put into protective custody and went home with the foster family um, and due to obvious concerns of mistreatment. Uh, eight weeks later, the child came back to the ED, the same general picture. The ethylene glycol from that lab again was showing that it was 911. Uh, and this was reportedly after there was a uh, unsupervised feeding by the biological mother. So, bum, bum, bum. Uh, the patient uh, ended up getting started on ethanol infusion and was dialyzed, on, um, but unfortunately uh, passed and was declared brain dead three days later. As a direct consequence, the mother was imprisoned for first degree murder. However, the wrinkle and the only way that this came to light was the mother in prison had a second child who had the exact same manifestation uh, shortly after. Um, so this, this second child came in with an acidemia, altered mental status, and was eventually diagnosed with a B12 unresponsive methylmalonic acidemia, which is one of the many inborn errors of metabolism. Um, and so the authors went back and got the serum from the first child's case and retested that and found that yes, indeed, that was actually more consistent with, with methylmalonic acidemia and not ethylene glycol poisoning, which is just a wild story. Um, so what, what exactly had happened um, and what was the whole point of this, this article was that the patient, the first patient's serum was measured by gas chromatography, and we have these figures here, which I can pull up, and for the people who are, you know, not able to see it, uh, describe it. Um, so uh, the, the first figure is basically a series of spikes um, that were generated from the gas chromatography. Uh, the solid line was the patient's sample. And, the, and they had superimposed over it a dotted line of basically an ethylene glycol sample to kind of put the, the two in, in comparison. Um, and so what they're trying to show is that the ethylene glycol spike is very near the propionic acid spike, um, where ethylene glycol, of course, is the toxic alcohol and propionic acid is a metabolite that is part of the many indicators that lead to the diagnosis of this methylmalonic acidemia. And both of them have this second tall spike at the end of the spectrum. Um, so taken together, it's pretty, well, it's not easy, but it is e understandable how these two, these, this gas chromatograph could be interpreted as an ethylene glycol um, poisoning. And, and the way that we get these, this information through gas, gas chromatography is basically the sample is, um, uh, put into a machine that is assessing the components based on their volatility. So the, the, the sample is effectively vaporized, and the way that they interact with the various sensors and polar solutions used by the machine is reported out in this graph, graph of multiple different spikes over time. Um, so methylmalonic acidemia, or methylmalonic aciduria, uh, is an autosomal recessive condition where the enzymes responsible for amino acid and fatty acid metabolism are, are deficient um, and methylmalonic acid builds up. But propionic acid is the precursor to methylmalonic acid, so that too can start to accumulate, especially when um, the child is not really maintaining their nutrition. 
the treatment for this is actually a low protein diet and carnitine supplementation. Um, and so in this particular case, if that goes undiagnosed and we don't address that appropriately, the acids build up, these children get very sick. So presumably what happened was, in this case, the child was getting to that end of the sick spectrum, the propionic acid was accumulating and creating this gas chromatography spike that looks very similar to an ethylene glycol kind of spike on, um, that led to the misdiagnosis. But then also the salvage diagnosis, because what they, um, what I believe was the, the, the way that they, they actually are supposed to diagnose it is by using um, gas chromatography and mass spectroscopy, because mass spectroscopy looks at the actual mass of the compound and propionic acid and ethylene glycol at very different weights. And so that would help kind of separate the two in order for us to get this appropriate diagnosis. Um, so that was the first case. The second case was kind and, of... And I'll just add that they yeah. did a sort of a proof of concept. They, oh, they didn't do it themselves, but they had a lab worker send their blood and they purposely mislabeled the blood as pre-dialysis and post-dialysis and sent it to a couple of labs. And sure enough, uh, after they spiked those samples with propionic acid and not ethylene glycol, all those samples came back positive for ethylene glycol from two different labs. So this would have been a common yet recurring false positive. Yes. So we can somewhat understand the mistakes that happened. Um, yeah, so the second case is kind of the, the flip side to that. Yes. Um, you should be more alert for ethylene glycol being not the problem, right? Correct. Except? Except in the, in the situation where it is. <laughs> so a six-month-old girl in the second case showed up, decreased activity, increased irritability, poor feeding, decreased urination, vomiting, lethargy, pale, very, you know, ill-appearing child. Um, they also had an elevated anti-gap metabolic acidosis. They had hyperchloridemia, hyperglycemia, and a urinalysis that was kind of vaguely positive and concerning for UTI. And so they got started on a bicarbon fusion and started on antibiotics, uh, and it resolved by hospital day two when she was discharged on hospital day five, just being considered a UTI. But to be kind of complete and well-rounded, they did send off plasma and urine organic acid screens um, on those day two labs and she was getting better. Um, and at that time it was negative, except for some evidence of glycine and urinary dicarboxylic acids. Um, and so just kind of this vague finding that they weren't quite sure what to do with. So they just called it a UTI at the first visit. Six days later, the patient comes back for exactly the same presentation was recovered under the exact same treatment. And this time after discharge, they sent her for outpatient workup of organic acidemias, acidurias. And again, it was, the initial workup wasn't very revealing and a presumptive diagnosis of a fatty acid oxidation defect, yet another uh, inborn error of metabolism was diagnosed and the child's diet was readjusted. Um, and the even more falsely reassuring element of this was Nothing happened for another two months, so it kind of seemed like maybe we had found the answer. But two months later, the patient returned again. Severe metabolic acidosis, and everything, you know, pointed towards a very ill acidosis, acidemic child. 
Um, but this time, they actually sent the samples from day one uh, while the patient was still in, in the most critical part of their, their illness. And this one actually ended up showing uh, that they had um, uh, glycolic acid, glycine, and then urine samples demonstrated oxalate crystals. So they, they, they sent that off for confirmatory testing and the ethylene glycol concentration was elevated. Law enforcement was involved and they got two bottles of formula um, at home that was, were intended obviously for the child and they found that those had been spiked with uh, ethylene glycol. The parents were never really the, the chief suspicion of this, but they noted that every time the child got sick was coordinating with the babysitter's schedule. And so that babysitter was fired. Um, no, I don't, based on how they wrote the article, this never resulted in any sort of legal action against the babysitter, but the babysitter never came back. And as far as the authors knew, neither the child did not have to go into the hospital anymore. Hmm. So what happened in this case, unlike the first one, so is like the exact opposite of, we did an entire workup, we found that elevated glycine, this must clearly be a uh, organic aciduria, um, but, but that obviously it wasn't, it was ethylene glycol poisoning. Um, and so the authors concluded were, felt that what had actually happened was all of the testing for the aciduria, the organic acidurias um, and the metabolic abnormalities were all done when the child had recovered, when the child was no longer symptomatic. Um, and so we're basically detecting the delayed uh, metabolites, in a sense, of the ethylene glycol. And so their kind of position was that these patients need to have their testing early on, kind of the oldest possible blood sample, in a sense, um, in order to really know what is occurring during the, the acute phase of their illness. Um, uh, because unfortunately, as we know, all drugs and all these compounds can undergo metabolism. And once we no longer have the, the metabolite that we're looking for to test for, we can't really say that that's in there. Um, and in this case, they were saying that the glycine was probably the, the degradate, de, uh, or metabolite degradation product of the ethylene, of the glycolic acid. And so by finding it on those day two, day three, weeks later, all we were really finding was ethylene glycol, but we were misattributing it because that's not what we look for primarily. So two, like I say, back-to-back -back sort of opposite cases, one where the guilty party never quite identified or at least prosecuted who was spiking milk with antifreeze, and the other case, the guilty, not-so-guilty mother sent to jail, but for the fact that she pregnant and gave birth to a second child with the same exact metabolic disorder that was misattributed to ethylene glycol poisoning. I think the good news is, sort of raise our awareness about this, but probably this may not happen as far as the misidentification of propionic acid anymore because we have more sophisticated GC machines that actually computer uh, in look, the computer looks and compares the spikes based on a huge library of spikes rather than back in the 80s when this happened with the lab techs lining it up against the sort of, well, it looks like a, where we, you know, expect a spike for propionic acid or ethylene glycol poisoning. So, before, uh, before we leave ethylene glycol poisoning, I'm gonna talk about one more um, group of cases that have to do with that. And so, turn to uh, Kathy. 
going to tell us about those. Great. Um, so the first, hi, Kathy, coming in from Zoom. Um, so the first case that I want to talk about is um, it's ethylene glycol poisoning uh, presenting with a falsely elevated lactate level. Um, so this is a case of ethylene glycol poisoning where the patient showed falsely elevated lactate level, which was measured by a point-of-care blood gas analyzer in the emergency department, um, which are being used more and more. Um, the specific uh, machine was the radiometer. Um, I think it was, I think this is the same machine that um, was in Emma's case earlier. Um, you'll be hearing that a lot uh, soon. Um, so they're talking about that this can be, this can lead to a misdiagnosis, but can also be used to identify ethylene glycol poisoning. Um, so in this case, we have this 19-year-old kid who was found um, with decreased level of consciousness. It's that he had many empty cans of soft drinks around him, um, wondering if they were monster energies, just personal wondering. Um, on arrival, he was vomiting, lethargic, not following commands. Um, got a point-of-care blood gas on him um, using this AVL um, radiometer machine. Um, his pH was 6.99, uh, bicarb 1.5, um, PCO2 6.5, and they read his lactate as greater than 30, um, which alarmed everyone. Um, I guess his chest x-ray was normal. He gave you a sinus pack. They couldn't figure out what was going on. Then they got... Um, plasma testing uh, that was sent to the lab and his lactate ended up only being 3.2 on that testing. Um, also later revealed um, Osmolar gap of 31 um, and AN gap of 37. Um, so they're now, now they're thinking ethylene glycol. Um, turns out his level, um, I think it was 1.1 uh, grams per deciliter, uh, grams per liter, 17 millimoles per liter and he improved with hemodialysis. Um, so what happens in this case? Um, the authors are saying um, there's sort of two different ways to test, um, to test lactate level. Um, the main metabolism of lactate that I think that I was used to is um, like inorgan, um, uh, uh, um, the, uh, um, uh, the metabolism that you go to lactate to pyruvate using lactate dehydrogenase. Um, and that's what the plasma test was using. That's what the, the lab test was using. Um, the point of care was using lactate oxidase. There's another reaction where lactate oxidase um, uh, metabolizes lactate to pyruvate and it produces hydrogen peroxide. And that's what this point of care radiometer was measuring was the hydrogen peroxide. Um, what turns out is that glycolic acid um, or glycolate um, looks a lot, has a similar structure to lactate and can also be metabolized by lactate oxidase to hydrogen peroxide. So the elevated uh, glycolate from the ethylene glycol poisoning was, um, uh, was being metabolized by lactate oxidase to make hydrogen peroxide. And that's why this point of care um, radiometer test was, um, was giving these elevated lactate levels. Um, so this paper at the end of it, they sort of say that um, 
you can use the lactate gap, which is basically the gap in the lactate between the plasma testing and this point of care radiometer to, um, to maybe identify ethylene glycol poisoning quicker than you would have um, with, um, without it because, you know, the ethylene glycol tests take a while to come back. So they're using that this can lead to misdiagnosis, but it can also be used to aid diagnosis um, of ethylene glycol poisoning sooner rather than later. Um, so in the second paper, yeah, I'll just add a, very similar. A, I'll just add that a note, another study that was done, which is kind of interesting, also spiking blood to see what turned it positive or negative. They didn't do this, but it was in their discussion. But they spiked blood with glycolate, and that was positive for lactate. Glycolic acid. Glycolic acid and glycolate, yeah. But oxalate itself was not. So, of the different no, metabolic yeah. end products of awesome. glycol, it's two out of three caused problems. Anyway, go ahead, sorry. Next yeah, um, ethylate, yeah. Oxalic acid, it did not, um, it did, was not, it did not have an elevated lactate level. Um, and neither did formic acid. I think that's actually in the um, the other. I think that's actually in the other paper. I'm oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, but the 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 second paper, um, the second paper, it has very similar cases, but they actually um, they're actually experimenting to see which um, basically which point of care meters will give this um, this elevated uh, lactate level. Um, and which won't. So they had five different um, five different analyzers. Two of them were laboratory plasma analyzers, and three of them were point of care um, blood gases that are commonly used in the ER. The ones they used were the iStat. Um, they had the Bayer Rapid Lab 865, and then they had the Radiometer um, 700. And basically, this is where all the figures go. And basically, they took all the metabolites of um, glycolic, uh, ethylene glycol. They took glycolic acid, glycoxylic acid, oxalic acid, and they threw formic acid in there for good measure, which is the metabolite of um, methanol poisoning. And they basically added them into all of the uh, point of care meters. Um, and they found that uh, the radiometer uh, point of care analyzers showed markedly elevated lactate levels, um, even with small amounts of glycolic acid. I think as small amounts of five millimoles per liter, um, that even made the um, radiometer uh, have um, very high lactate readings. Um, and again, it was glycolate and glycoxylate. I guess they were similar enough to both um, to both make the radiometer um, uh, give high lactate readings. Um, and again, uh, oxalic acid nor formic acid altered readings at all. And also the um, the Bayer and the ISAT and the two plasma machines, they all showed less than four, a lactate of less than four, even with really high glycolate levels. Um, so basically, and they, they had a similar result that um, they can use this lactate gap to, um, to potentially diagnose people with ethylene glycol poisoning sooner, um, just because, you know, the, the test takes so long to come back. So they had two different patients 
The first case they had was the 49-year-old female who came in. That point-of-care radiometer read a lactate level of 42. They had surgery consulted because they were concerned with mesenteric ischemia. They were, like, ready to do a laparotomy on this lady, it seems like, until they got the plasma level back and was 1.5. Her care was greatly delayed because of this misdiagnosis. She was discharged after two weeks and was still dependent on dialysis when she was discharged. They compared that to the second patient that they had where, basically, the second patient, as soon as they came in, they basically... Where was that one? The second patient, they were able to pretty quickly recognize... The second patient, basically, they came in and they used this lactate gap, and within two days, the patient was discharged with not requiring any dialysis. They were discharged and they were back to baseline within two days versus two weeks for the first patient who was misdiagnosed with the lactate. So they're basically, again, saying they can use this lactate gap to potentially have a faster diagnosis of ethylene glycol poisoning. But you have to have that specific radiometer of 700. I don't think it's the only one. There's like two or three, but they're all sort of the ISTAT or point-of-care instruments that often give you the false lactate. But you should... Obviously, if someone's lactate's in the teens or 20s, then it's not due to shock or sepsis, and we shouldn't go down the sepsis protocol. We should call talks and let us sort out whether it's metformin, which may be one explanation, or it is a false positive lactate indicating this problem here. We've had a case where they've called the surgeons first and done surgery or wanted to do surgery, like they did in your case, because they were worried about ischemic bowel or some other inter-abdominal catastrophe. I was really shocked by that first case where they had the surgeons in before they even had plasma labs and a CT scan. The surgeons already came. I'm like, what hospital are they working at where that's happening? But that's like surgeons wanting to operate without a CAT scan. I don't know. That seems wild to me. But I guess it happens. Yeah. I know we've been in that scenario from time to time. But now we understand that the lactate in the point of care is not perfect for lactate. False negatives abound. Again, you say lactates are greater than 30. It doesn't necessarily mean esoteric ischemia. It could be metformin. It could be cyanide. There's so many other things. It could be not just mesenteric ischemia. All right. Well, before we leave the anion gap behind, I want to do one more case, something else that the anion gap sometimes refers us to. But there's a case of just the opposite where the anion gap is not revealing in an aspirin case. So tell us about that, and then we'll introduce the other two as well. 
Yeah, um, I have the title is negative anion gamma metabolic acidosis and cell cyclate overdose. Um, zebra. So um, this is a there's a 30 year old man. He presented to the ED. He had um, reported a possible alcohol ingestion and overdose of Keppra. Patient was sweating. Um, he required Ativan and Haldol to reduce his agitation. Sorry, I just lost my thought. Okay. Um, so initial workup for him, his sodium was 146, his chloride was uh, elevated to 118, carbon dioxide 21, urea nitrogen was 12, again in 1.0, and gap was 7. Um, and his, he had leukocytes of about 14, normal hemoglobin and platelets. INR was 0.5. His VBG was revealing for pH of 7.4, um, bicarbo 14.5, and carbon dioxide of 24, oxygen to 88. Um, so they did a tox screen on him. They found his cell cyclate level about 45.8 and uh, it was positive for Kepra and CBC and ethanol. His anion gap was normal throughout the course in his, uh, in, at the hospital, even though he was acidotic and has a BMP and BBG. And um, at one point during the stay, his cell cyclate levels peaked at 81 after eight hours at the hospital. and. Chloride levels also climbed up accordingly with the salicyclate levels, peaking at 121. So they immediately treated him with activated charcoal and half normal saline and um, bicarb. So this paper talks about how we could have missed a salicyclate poisoning if they didn't test for that, if they just went based on, okay, he wasn't. Um, showing any anion gap elevation and changes in that, and he was just acidotic. So, this was potentially due to the machines that test, like run um, BMPs. Uh, they, the hospital used the Simon's Dimension Vista Analyzer, um, which happened to read the salicyclic ions as chloride ions. So, it was giving this falsely elevated chloride ion levels and didn't show the true anion gap that he potentially had. Um, so this was the education yeah. So yeah, I could have easily thrown this paper in with the pseudohypochloremia mm -hmm. papers. This is really a mis-overlooking of the chloride level, which went up to 121, but because of the individual machine they used really was reflected salicylate toxicity, so, which they almost missed. Um, but nothing gets scarier than a salicylate level that's reported back in the hundreds. Sometimes it's not true. So tell us about those cases. Yeah, the other cases, title was a falsely elevated salicylate concentration in a patient with hypertriglyceridemia. So this was, uh, in this paper they talk about a 26-year-old man. He presented with diffuse abdominal pain and he had tachycardia of 110, but a soft belly with my right lower quadrant pain. His uh, laboratory, uh, his lab results were significant for hyponatremia of 122, normal anion gap and bicarb and CR, uh, pH. But his serum triglycerides were 7,650, serum cholesterol of thousands in the thousands. Uh, his ethanol and salicylate were measured because there was a concern for self-harm, and it was 13.1 and over 100, respectively. Um, this was measured using the Simon's calorimetric method as well. So when they had this uh, lab result, they consulted nephrology, 
and over the phone they thought we, they should activate charcoal and hemodialysis and transfer to uh, like tertiary care. However, when the pa patient was evaluated at bedside, he was asymptomatic. He only had that abdominal pain that he presented with, and he didn't have the typical signs of salicyclic poisoning. And quickly they realized this mistake was due to hyperlipidemia, so they stopped all his treatment they began for that, and they treated him with insulin infusion for his severe hypertriglycides, and his trigs and salicyclic levels dropped. Um, another education point was that Usually, salicylic concentration about 10 milligrams should have produced symptoms of those things that we expect, like nausea, vomiting, tinnitus, and tachycardia, and hypernia, and acidosis, which he didn't have. Uh, the paper also mentions how there's multiple methods to measure, uh, like the Trinder test, which combines the ferric ions with salicylic to produce a purple color. The other ones are fluorescence, polarization, immunoassay, uh, which uses polyclonal antibody, and then the other one uses uh, hydroxylase, which is supposed to be specific for measurement and has no interference with other stuff. The other case is pretty similar. Uh, this is a 38-year-old male, uh, but he has a past medical history of non-ischemic, cardiomyopathy, hyperlipidemia, depression, hypothyroidism, and he was found to be altered mental status for one week. He had fallen multiple times, had like exertional syncope, um, worsening dyspnea for about two weeks, and his recent ejection fraction was 45%. He's on vast majority of medication like gabapentin, atrovastatin, glucerone, and furosemide, and digoxin, and carbidolol. I, in the ED, his blood pressure was 60 over 31, tacky to 180, um, oxygen was 96. Uh, his physical exam was, examination was pretty unremarkable. Uh, he was hyponatremic as well, 114, hypoclemic 2.8, and then GAP of 13. They measured his um, salicyclic levels because he has a history of depression and suicidal thoughts, even though he denied any at the moment, um, it was salicyclic le levels 109 and APAP was 7.8. His pH was 7.48 and carbon dioxide was 41 and oxygen 61. They then called the poison center and they recommended to do an alkalizing therapy and also transfer to tertiary care for hemodialysis. Uh, but due to like this incongruity between his presentation, um, and his lab results, they did a repeat salicyclic, which was 77. At the tertiary center, he had normal vital signs. His sodium was 132 now, um, and potassium was 3.1, anion gap was 18, ASD was 328, ALT was 109, but his APAP was 4.8, and salicyclic was less than 5. They measured uh, cholesterol and triglycerides there, and it was total cholesterol was 1,000, and hundreds and triglycerides were in the six thousands. So they realized that this um, is probably the reason why he had a weird elevation in cyclone. So they did supportive care and improved his transaminase and he was diagnosed with orthostatic hypotension and hyperlipidemia and hepatic steatosis. So they're both of those facilities, they use enzymatic spectrophotometric light, but um, so usually 
what they do is if a patient found to have um, like hypertriglyceremia, they use a lipoclear or they centrifuge and they um, only use a fluid that's like doesn't have the lipid concentration because it affects <coughs> the um, readings and it can possibly have an elevated salicyclate level. Um, and then they called the other lab or the other hospital that had his sample from the previous time and they did the delipidation step and his repeat salicyclate levels was less than 2.0. And they should have also, they mentioned how this should have been kind of a tip off because hyperlipidemia is uh, also taught to like um, have pseudo hyponatremia and his hyponatremia, like his sodium levels were pretty low in the first uh, hospital as well. So that's what this paper talked about. All right. Great. Yeah, we've had other cases of this, and I don't know if they tell you, you mentioned the lipoclear is the magic substance that you have to add yeah. in a light uh, fatty t uh, serum to get the answer. I imagine the, these labs are pretty obvious, too. They usually sit, you know, on a counter for a few minutes, and then you can see it all separated out. Yeah. <laughs> so you can probably request that. All right. Well, changing gears, um, a little bit more anti-GAF problems, and about this time focusing on lithium as the problem. So Joe, tell us about your two papers. All right, <clears throat> so we'll, we'll start off with a paper that's titled Reduced or Absent Serum Anion-GAF as a Marker of Severe Lithium Carbonate Intoxication. It's essentially, um, this paper talks about two different cases where there was either uh, an anion gap of zero or markedly reduced that patients presented with um, lithium toxicity. Um, it kind of gets into the reasons why that may be. So just kind of as a reminder, our anion gap is our measured um, cations, which are sodium, uh, subtracted by the sum of our uh, measured anions of bicarbonate chloride. Uh, normal somewhere 8 to 16. Um, and then in regards to our lithium levels, anything greater than 3.5 milliequivalents per liter, we consider severe toxicity as far as for the purpose of this paper. Um, this, this case, um, so one case is, had a 64-year-old woman um, that was admitted um, for inability to ambulate and disorientation. She had a history of bipolar affected disorder. Um, and she was on lithium therapy uh, for the last two years. Um, she was disoriented, had increased deep tendon reflexes and myoclonic jerks. Um, ultimately, she had a lithium level scent um, that was recorded at 4.5 milliequivalents per liter and an ion gap of two in her case. She underwent um, hemodialysis and had resolution of her symptoms and then also improvement in her lithium level from 4.5 uh, to 0 0.9. Um, anion gap also normalized at that point to seven. Uh, in her case, you know, the remainder of her electrolytes really were, were sort of unremarkable. Potassium of 4.3, um, calcium of 10, magnesium of 1.9, phosphate of 3, albumin of 8.8, and a globulin of 2.2. Um, case also discusses, there's the second case of an 88-year-old I'm sorry, of a 33-year-old um, with a history of manic depression who had stopped taking lithium two, priors, two months prior to her presenting uh, because she developed nephrogenic diabetes insipidus at that point. 
Um, and then on the day of presentation, had a self-harm uh, attempt once she took an unknown amount of lithium. Uh, sounds like she was obtunded, uh, had some moderate volume depletion on exam. Uh, she presented with uh, a lithium level of 6.5 uh, and an anion gap of zero. Um, she underwent, sounds like, two sessions of hemodialysis with improvement. Um, her lithium level improved to 1.5 and her anion gap uh, increased uh, to six at that point from zero. So she, ultimately her case, uh, she ended up uh, expiring due to uh, some underlying pneumonia and then developed sepsis. Um, so in this, in this uh, case, there, so ser the serum lithium ion concentration was measured by flame photometry. Um, they did, they took 10 subjects um, and measured their therapeutic lithium ion concentrations. They had normal renal function and they found that um, they had a mean anion gap of 8.5. In these two cases, uh, in what is a severe overdose in both cases, with initial presenting lithium levels of 4.5 and 6.5 respectively, they had either marketed low or undetectable anion gaps. Um, otherwise, no other electrolyte derangements. Um, there, are, there could be several reasons why somebody might have uh, either an undetectable or a low anion gap. Uh, paper discusses, as we kind of talked about, alluded to Emma's case before, in the case of a possible bromide intoxication, we can see something like this, or somebody with some sort of plasma cell dyscrasia uh, or hypoalbuminemia, uh, where uh, could also present with low anion gaps. Uh, it's interesting because lithium being one of, you know, one of the unmeasured uh, cations that could have an impact in having obviously a low anion gap. So interesting for us to consider in our differentials. You know, somebody that you may not be thinking of bromine intoxication, may not be thinking uh, some sort of uh, plasma cell dyscrasia or hypoalbuminemia, just something to keep in mind as far as uh, potential for lithium toxicity in somebody with an undetectable or, or low anion gap. So two, inter two interesting cases um, where the anion gap could have pointed you into one direction to... And it's never a negative number, it's just a small single digit That's right. number. That's right. Just to be clear. Yeah. Yeah. But sometimes it can go in the opposite direction, falsely. So tell us about your other paper. Oh yeah, so this is um, a paper titled Factitious lithium toxicity secondary to lithium heparin containing blood tubes. So this was um, a descriptive study that um, was triggered by, it seems like there was a case of a 12-year-old that had presented with a lithium level of 9.2 millimoles per liter, not showing any clinical signs of lithium toxicity. And ultimately, uh, it was determined that the reason for that was that the patient had tox la or lithium level drawn in tubes that contained lithium uh, that were bound to the heparin. So this case, um, or this, this study took uh, two different types of green top tubes, uh, typical tubes that we would run sort of in our standard rainbow panel or tox labs, um, and measured uh, lithium levels in patients, five healthy volunteers who had never ingested lithium, did not use any sort of medications, uh, you know, dietary supplements, vitamins, or any illicit um, drugs, 
and measured their lithium levels in these two different types of tubes. One tube contains 57 uh, USP units of lithium. The second tube uh, contains 72 USP units of lithium. And then they used a non-lithium containing control tube uh, and also ran lithium levels on that. Um, the result was, uh, as we can see sort of in the table to describe it, they, in, their, in their green top tubes, the two different tubes, they uh, did three different measurements. They filled one set of tubes with one cc of patient's blood, one set of tubes with two cc's of patient blood, and then one uh, set of tubes with full amount of blood. And we can see that um, lithium levels were markedly elevated in all of these patients, um, helping these patients that are not on lithium, and inversely proportional um, the amount of blood that was collected to the lithium level. So the, the lower amount of, uh, or the smaller amount of blood collected in the sample had higher amounts of lithium, presumably due to the just relative blood concentration of the lithium in the tube to the, to the patient's blood level. So, you know, interesting, the control you know, essentially had an undetectable lithium level. There was a small amount, 0.16, which is interesting to sort of, you know, probably within the range of error, I would imagine, in, in a machine like this. Um, but certainly, you know, this has tremendous, I think, impact on, on somebody that you are considering potential lithium toxicity to drive, you know, maybe unnecessary procedures such as hemodialysis. There seems to be some sort of impact on the amount of lithium uh, in these heparin-containing tubes uh, triggering the, the result that we're seeing. You know, values measured um, in, the, in a tube that had one cc of the patient's blood, um, you know, values as high as, you know, 3.3 3 to 4. Um, and then a full tube um, measuring somewhere between, you know, somewhere between 1 and 1.5. Uh, for both of those tubes, so not uh, insignificant. Um, and then, you know, this is this the lab error? I think we can think about it as maybe it being contaminated more than it is a lab error, but something to be aware of if, if we are considering that sending a, a lithium level on someone it may behoove us to find out what type of tube is being used because it could falsely elevate somebody that may actually be therapeutic in their lithium and may have an alternate explanation for their clinical presentation. So, yeah. interesting. So it's not a false positive, it's a true positive, yeah. but a false diagnosis because right. you don't take into account the fact that it's lithiated heparin in green top tubes, which we always tell people not to use, but it's faster apparently to run a serum separator on a green top than a red top, and that's often what, what happens. So we hear these cases with lithium levels in the three to five <coughs> range. It looks great. We should ask what type of tube before we recommend other therapies that may not be necessary, including dialysis. There's a couple of interesting things about this one that yeah. they never got to nine, which is what their yeah. original patient they yeah, didn't get anywhere close to nine. Yeah. So I don't know if it actually explains their original patient. That said, um, I don't know, I don't think our lab would ever accept a vacutainer that doesn't that isn't full. They just toss mm. them out. Mm. And this I mean I don't That's know if point. this is the this is the reason or not, but I they wouldn't run a sample with one. I totally understand why they did it totally. for the research. I think it's really, it's totally appropriate and it makes sense. And, and it's interesting because, you know, proportions. Of course. <laughs> but, you know, and I think that's the other thing is that a full tube, it shouldn't be really much more than one. 
which is enough to throw off your diagnosis for sure. Yeah. Or, or should lead to an admission that you don't need for fluids. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. You can imagine if someone had a therapeutic lithium and then it's plus one, <laughs> you know, that might lead you to do something totally different. So, but I did think it was interesting that they, they never got close to nine. And I don't know where that came from. It's pretty and I don't think they have lithium, lithiated heparin in like PD tubes or I, yeah. I'm kind of curious what, how that could possibly happen, but anyway. All right, and last, but certainly not least, is we get a lot of drug screens. And people ask us to get drug screens because they think it means something very important, but often there's more false positives on drug screens than there are true positives, except for one or two exceptions. But the one that trips us up or trips people up over and over again the one we actually don't use, which is a drug screen for tricyclic antidepressants. So we have two different articles with two different cross-reacting substances here. Sammy? It's all true. Yeah, the granddaddy of them all, the tricyclics. So one of the most feared overdoses, really. So uh, I have a couple of papers here. One of them is from 1999, and it goes over a couple of case reports uh, uh, with the general theme being a false positive for TCAs led to a diagnosis of carbamazepine overdose or toxicity. Uh, so, yeah, you may be thinking, why are there so many carbamazepine overdoses? Uh, I had the same question. Turns out, back in, at least back in 1999, at least uh, near Kentucky, 70% uh, of all pediatric overdoses were carbamazepine. Um, so, you know, but it's, it's, it's not something that I see often now, of course. Uh, so I'll just talk about the uh, case reports first. Um, so case one, they're all quite similar actually, but a 16-year-old uh, with a history of seizures and tics uh, presented after an unknown ingestion. They were found unresponsive. Uh, vital signs, you know, were essentially uh, within normal limits, but they did have some decorticate posturing and some pretty midriatic pupils, like nine millimeters, uh, that were slightly reactive. Their labs were uh, otherwise normal for the most part. Um, their, their urine drug screen uh, was positive for amphetamines, uh, but later uh, a TCA screen, which was sent, uh, was, was positive. Um, so I gather that back in the 90s, a TCA screen was a separate screen that was probably often sent. Uh, but like Zane mentioned, uh, it's not like a common or typical thing that we send nowadays because they're not as common of, of drugs, I guess. Uh, so this patient um, became more somnolent. They got a GCS of seven uh, and were eventually intubated. Um, CT head was non-diagnostic, but nothing super obvious on there. They were given charcoal after intubation and transferred to the ICU where their exam was described as having uh, roving extremity movements. Uh, they were hyperreflexic. They had ankle clonus. They had an upgoing Babinski. 
uh, some some strange findings here. Their LP ended up being normal, um, and then eventually we got some more information. So the serum uh, qualitative TCA screen was positive, but the quantitative was negative. So these astute clinicians, uh, this prompted them to check a carbamazepine level out of concern that there might be a false positive going on. So carbamazepine was indeed uh, elevated in this patient and turns out that they had uh, been off carbamazepine uh, uh, for almost a year. They had previously been on it, um, but doesn't really go into detail, but the patient felt that they were going to have a seizure, so they took an unknown amount of their carbamazepine prophylactically prior to that. So, yeah, you know, the case, the report kind of left out some uh, details that would have uh, helped uh, in a general case report presentation, but hey, uh, the main point is there is a positive TCA screen, um, but negative quantitative with uh, what ended up being positive uh, carbamazepine level. Case two, uh, it was a 17-year-old that came in from uh, an inpatient psych facility after an unknown ingestion. They were there for treatment of their bulimia. Uh, their initial presentation was ataxic with dilated pupils, um, and the patient apparently stated that they took 15 Percocets uh, you know, that, that night between the hours of 5.30 and 8.45 p.m. So their exam, you know, kind of suggested something maybe other than that because they had this slurred speech, this truncal ataxia, uh, this dysmetria, which is different than we'd think uh, with a Percocet overdose. Uh, so uh, they were, uh, again, some screens were sent, uh, including UDS, which was negative, uh, but a separate TCA screen was positive. They were given charcoal, um, some decontamination, uh, and eventually carbamazepine with the same kind of thinking, uh, uh, carbamazepine was checked and was elevated at 18 micrograms per milliliter. This was now about 12 hours post-ingestion. So of course, uh, later uh, they determined that it they were not Percocets, they were carbamazepine tablets. Uh, the patient was clinically improved by the next day. Uh, so the third case, um, I'll go through that one briefly, it was a 10-year-old uh, who was sent in from a community hospital. Uh, their only drugs on the list were uh, lorazepam for uh, behavioral uh, type issues. They took that three times a day. Um, apparently went to take a nap, and then later grandma heard some banging and ruckus going on in that room uh, yes and they found they found that the patient uh, was altered lethargic uh, complained of double vision and they were just generally ataxic um, the case report then documents that the uh, in the e the patient went to the ed had a gcs of six uh, no clonus and they were also ataxic so i don't know I haven't seen many GCS six people like being able to, to test for ataxia, but hey, but hey that's okay. Uh, their CT head was also negative. Their their laboratory workup again uh, showed a positive TCA, but a negative 
TCA quantitative, prompting carbamazepine level, which was elevated. Uh, so this patient also improved by day two, and then of course they find an old bottle of carbamazepine at home that uh, was missing 33 200 milligram tablets. So, yeah. So uh, then uh, this uh, paper goes over um, a, uh, just shows a little table here that demonstrates, <laughs> ah, here we go, this is what I'm trying to do. A number of not that one. Yes. So uh, a number of screens that we have for TCAs. Uh, they're medium, and then drug uh, drug cross reactivity for these tests. So you can see there's uh, quite a number of false positives. Um, with different tests having different amounts and different drugs of false positives that can uh, flag positive for TCAs. So, um, you know, this one here, the, the SIVA emit, uh, as you can see, has, let's see, three, seven different known false positives. And we're going to add to that list, too, here in a little bit. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's one of the more, more common like uh, screens. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting too that the only one that seems to trip the urine is cyclobenzaprine. Yeah. Yes. All yeah. the other ones they proved that it cross reacted on blood, but right. I think that most of our testing that we do is usually a quick urine. Right, and I think that's true now. I think you know winding the clock back two decades, there was a lot of people who were getting qualitative or quantitative tricyclic screens because they were widely prescribed for depression. It's like before SSRIs really permeated the market. And people get admitted because their tricyclic screen was positive even though many of these drugs that you just mentioned, including carbamazepine. So that was something that could be a, a quickly sent in the ED numerical number. Come back pretty fast. Uh, at least get a semi-quantitative urine and anyone who's on therapeutic TCAs is going to be positive, so it doesn't help you for the overdose, but right. you can get a quantitative or semi-quantitative. Okay. And then, yeah, I always, uh, whenever I hear the chromatography, I always think that that's like uh, the purest and truest, and, you know, the gas seems to be pretty good, no reported drug cr cross-reactivity, but, you know, some of these other, even chromatography methods do have false positives as well. Um, so, um, here we go. And we, we make a lot of comments about like, you know, so-and-so cross-reacts with this amino assay, but it, you know, I mean, one of the things you just showed was it's really important to know your own, not necessarily the brand, but what are the false positives in your institution because they mm -hmm. are different in every place. Yeah. And, you know, just saying a raisin ham doesn't show up as a benzo, that's not necessarily entirely correct. Um, so overall, this study, uh, they made a couple other points in their discussion. They kind of highlighted uh, particular levels that 
Other studies have found to you know correlate carbamazepine levels with certain symptoms and in general, just to share for your guys' reference, um, greater than 85 was shown generally to have bad outcomes such as death, greater than 28 uh, in one study, and greater than 35 in a, out of a group of Oregon, so I'm going to trust Bob them. Was that, that was Bob Norton. Bob Norton. Oh my god. <laughs> uh, so Norton uh, found that greater than 35 was kind of the, the level where you would expect major toxicity like seizure, coma, intubation. Um, so, uh, yeah, overall, I always thought that concept was kind of cool. So the main point of this paper was like using the false positive to make a diagnosis of something else. Um, and I think, you know, there's a number of, well, there's one in particular I'm thinking of, like bupropion can cause a false positive for amphetamine. Um, but, you know, this method is really only potentially helpful if the thing you're testing for is rare and amphetamine, it's not that rare, or methamphetamine. So, um, but I can see how some things could be useful uh, with this kind of method. Um, all right, so the second paper I wanted to talk about was a, a group of a very, very astute researchers, selfless really, sacrificing their own bodies for science. Um, and this was about uh, quetiapine uh, false positives in uh, screening assays. Um, so um, this uh, paper used a case report uh, that I'll go over here as kind of a, um, to establish, you know, kind of what the issue it was here. So a 36-year-old uh, apparently called EMS 15 minutes after uh, ingesting a large uh, amount of cotiapine in a suicide attempt. Uh, they reported like 75 200 milligram tablets that uh, a of a prescription that they had just filled that morning. So by 45 minutes after the ingestion, the patient was already in the ED and they were obtunded, but maintained a, a good gag reflex. Didn't look like they were intubated. Their uh, vital signs showed heart rate in the 140s. They were Blood pressure was 70s over 30s. Uh, their pupils were kind of mid, mid-sized but reactive. And then otherwise no other significant exam findings. They did end up putting a Foley catheter in which showed, uh, which uh, put out 300 uh, urine right away. Uh, and then otherwise as far as relevant workup, the EKG showed uh, some QT prolongation for 80. So this patient ended up just getting fluids and then went to the ICU and they improved over the next 12 hours, uh, over the next 24 hours, QT normalized. Um, and then we get to the, the root of the, the paper here. Uh, labs uh, had shown uh, a positive uh, TCA uh, screen. And, you know, the patient did kind of have some of these features that uh, kind of mimicked uh, TCA toxicity. Uh, but uh, quetiapine levels uh, were actually the ones that were elevated and not TCA. So um, quetiapine levels was like 7,100 um, initially and then down to 4,200. 
uh, after four hours, which kind of aligns with its volume of distribution uh, in pharmacokinetics, uh, while the <coughs> TCA uh, was was not act was not truly elevated. So this case prompted a study, uh, which these two fellows uh, ran. They designed themselves, and what they did was took urine sample from uh, a patient who overdo who had overdosed on uh, quetiapine, and then a patient that was uh, on quetiapine normally, so like a therapeutic type of uh, dosage uh, patient. And then uh, they created their own uh, kind of urine concentrations uh, by one specific researcher, uh, Robert Hendrickson, uh, provided uh, the urine sample. <laughs> it was his published in there. I feel like you should have left it mysterious. Like guessing which author. I don't know. Explicitly states. Yeah, explicitly state the urine source uh, for the presumed, the presumed, uh, you know, clean sample. Uh, so what they did was uh, dissolved a 25 milligram tablet of quetiapine into this supposedly completely drug-free urine. <laughs> I'm just kidding. What's up? Let's just say quetiapine. Quetiapine. I mean, yeah, water is technically a drug, I guess. But a quetiapine-free sample. Uh, they created uh, various dilution, uh, various concentrations of, of this quetiapine solution so that they could uh, apply the amino assay, like three different amino assays to each concentration uh, in an attempt to see um, like what what concentration flags a false positive in these tests? So they created uh, dilutions of 1,000 micrograms per milliliter, 100, 10, 5, and 1. They used three different amino assays, uh, and it's a little bit easier for me to uh, show the table here. Yeah. So, uh, oops. And what they found, where's my arrow, okay. Yep, so what they found is, here are the three tests they used. The one on the patient in the case report was this microgenics uh, test. Uh, looks like the worst one, kind of, as far as false positive. Uh, and then triage and the SIVA. So, um, and then here is the overdose patient levels, which was 7.5, and the therapeutic was 0.2. So you can see that um, even on the lowest one, the lowest concentrations, um, two of these were uh, positive for TCAs when they didn't truly have it. Uh, they just had the the, uh, syrup, the quetiapine levels in them. Um, and then this triage one seems to be pretty false positive free as far as quetiapine goes. Uh, but so what's, what's kind of interesting here is that um, the Cevia and Microgenics, for example, were negative at, point, uh, at 5, but here at 0.2 were positive. 
so this was the patient sample. So the drug had already been metabolized and have its metabolites indicating that probably the metabolites are actually causing a false positive as well. And let's see if this, oh, okay, here we go. I just wanted to share a little thing of the metabolites, just so you, so there's like 20 different, <laughs> or like more than, at least 20, I think uh, the paper said, uh, metabolites uh, of the quetiapine, and they, they all look quite similar. Um, so you can fathom that they might um, uh, cause a, a screening test to be positive uh, with this uh, pretty similar structure. Um, so, stop sharing. So yeah, um, I mean that's that's really uh, the the main thing here um, is that uh, overall some urine assays gave false positives, um, likely due to the structural similarity. Um, yeah, uh, so yeah, I thought that was a cool study design and interesting findings. Anything else? Uh, and for the podcast, uh, what the original author is actually here with us. If there's any other tidbits. 20, 20 years, drug free, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, If there's any other tidbits uh, you want to drop in that. No, I just think it was, I, you already touched on it, but I think the idea that there's a lot more metabolites than there is source material yeah. is important because we often will only look at the original substance, in this case quetiapine, but you know, 95% of the quetiapine-like substances in the urine are metabolites that we actually don't measure. So just something to remember yeah. that a lot of these false positives, if you have a number, it's not going to necessarily match. Yeah. I think the good news is we mostly, I can't say every hospital in the country, but or the world has stopped using this, but we mostly have stopped using it as a screen. And quite frankly, there's a lot of other urine drug screens that don't screen very well for the substance that we're looking for. We'll probably need to reevaluate what honestly we're looking for and why. Um, the other thing I'll mention is that many of these studies were done like they found a case and it was like, huh, we almost blew it or we almost dialyzed someone or we almost gave someone the wrong treatment and they went back and they kind of self-experimented or spiked some samples of normal blood or urine and got an answer. Stuff we certainly could easily do with our lab colleagues and we see other issues come up because this is certainly won't be the last group of things that cause problems and inconclusive lab tests. But these are the common ones we should be aware of as we go forward through the year. So thank you all for participating. It was a long journal club, but we'll see you all next time when we do this again. Thank you.